0: of New York-based process artist Christo has puzzled even the most tolerant viewers. It typically consists of uh, huge projects using nylon sheets that wrap buildings or even landscapes. Uh, Some critics regard this not as art, but as one more nihilistic insult to the Western aesthetic temperament. A closer look, however, reveals some interesting features, and I think uh, some that are quite compatible uh, with Christian sensibility. In 1976, uh, Christo created the Running Fence, which is an 18 foot tall, white nylon ribbon that stretched for over 24 miles across Sonoma and Marin counties in Northern California. It began on one side of Highway 101 and ran right to the Pacific Ocean. Driving or walking in the area, you first uh, see this banner not at one end, but at some point along the way. And as the eye follows it up and down the hills, the clear contours emerge. The landscape's hues and shapes suggest themselves. And this fence disappears first here and there as it's hidden behind a hill, and then altogether beyond what the eye can see. Christo, who significantly dropped his last name, has not surprisingly invited reflection about the transcendent by his viewers. These great sheets of fabric are only displayed for a few days or weeks. Human finitude is impressed on us, on the beholder, as we look at the sheer size of these temporary works produced. And as we stand in awe of their dimension, we suddenly become aware of our own limits. And we can echo David's words, what is man that you are mindful of him? The work also highlights the basic shape of things, their underlying structure. Similarly to the way Cezanne painted landscapes by bringing out their geometric outlines. And Christo goes directly to his subject and he invites the viewer to discover the outline personally. And there's more. Wrapping buildings or coastlines suggests a gift and reminds us of the way the world in which we live is not just our own creation. It comes to us, as it were, wrapped as a present because of God's blessing. Art historian Dominique Laporte sees another connection with the Christian message. These sheets, which are eventually removed, present a shroud syndrome, which reminds us of the theme of the death and resurrection of the Lord. Now, however much this aspect of Christo's approach may be intentional, it has the effect of pointing us to the creator of the world and has given a new awareness to us of the meaning and direction of the world. Presuppositional apologetics does the same thing, only more directly and with words. Apologetics, as we learned uh, last night, is, is the justification of the Christian hope. It's something scripture requires us to present to those who challenge us. And again, as we were reminded in the excellent lecture by my colleague Bob Knudsen, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us in our hearts to set apart Christ as Lord, always to be prepared to give an answer, apologia, to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have, but to do this with gentleness and respect. Throughout the history of the church, many different schools of apologetics have sought to obey this commandment with more or less success. Some rely on reasoning constructs, seeking to demonstrate things like the existence of God by the force of logic. Others are based on appeals to aesthetics or moral sensitivity. Still others look at historical evidence for the reality of the Christian account. Presuppositional apologetics is the name given to the approach taken by those who stand in the tradition of Hune von Prinsterer, Abraham Kuyper, and Cornelius van Til. And the term, perhaps a bit awkward, refers to the concern for basic commitments shared by these Reformed thinkers, Now this approach is not meant to minimize logic or evidences but to incorporate them into a framework by which they can make sense. And I find it sad that uh, so much polarization has occurred between various schools which often caricature each other's positions without doing the careful work of investigation needed in order to take a stand. And yet I believe that Presuppositional apologetics is distinctive and needs to be defended. Sort of an apologetics of apologetics. Now, uh, as uh, Professor Knudsen pointed out last night, presuppositional apologetics is transcendental in its thrust. That means it, it seeks to do justice to the intellectual and spiritual conditions Whereby anything has meaning. Like the works of Christo, it wants to draw our attention to the basic contours of an intellectual and cultural landscape. It affirms our finitude, indeed, our sinfulness, and the insufficiency of human beings to understand the universe. And at the same time, it presents God as the great creator, the giver of life. Only a world whose meaning is defined by Elohim, the living God, makes any sense at all. The challenge of presuppositional apologetics, then, as I understand it, is the same challenge that was addressed to Job so long ago. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you understand. The heart of presuppositional apologetics is just that, the heart. Because God has revealed himself clearly in the things that he has made, and also in special revelation, and finally in Jesus Christ, he has revealed himself and our hearts, which are the center of of our being, and he has required that we respond to this revelation in the love of the truth. Interestingly, the Apostle Peter begins his definition of apologia by telling us to lift up Christ in our hearts. This is not some sort of spiritual preface to the hard work of giving answers. It's the only condition which makes apologetics legitimate, the condition of a worshipful heart. It goes together with gentleness and respect, which he calls for in the same verse. The most consistent apologetic approach, then, is one that begins with worship and ends with humility. And whatever else one may say about the details of presuppositionalism, that is its core. It begins and ends, as Van Til used to say, frankly, with authority. Not the blind authority of fideism, which is a leap of faith that denies reason. On the contrary, beginning with proper biblical authority is the most reasonable move one could make. In other words, concern with presuppositions doesn't make us somehow shy about argumentation but it enhances and establishes it. Neither reason nor any other part of the created world are neutral, isolated from the total framework of things. Their ultimate meaning is in the God who is there, to use Francis Schaeffer's powerful language. So at one level, asking why I'm a presuppositionalist is the same thing as asking why I believe in God. He is such a basic part of everything that I am that it almost seems abstract to pull out various reasons for believing him and analyze them. It's somewhat like being asked why I'm married to Barbara. What are the reasons? Well, it's a hard question only because I hardly ever stop to think what the reasons are. Perhaps that's because I'm so happily married. But it's also because my reasons for being married, though they do involve intellectual commitments, primarily involves a relationship to a person. Now, unlike marriage to Barbara, I believe presuppositionalism is for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Let me uh, suggest... uh, Four reasons for its virtues, and I'm sure many of us in this room could add a lot more. First of all, very simply, I think presuppositional apologetics accords better with biblical doctrine than other positions. First and foremost, it's the reality of God we want to proclaim. In a way, nothing else really matters. Either God exists and is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, or he does not, and to believe in him is utter folly. Now, Reformed theology makes no claims to have arrived at the final formulation of God's nature, but it is consistently attempted to describe God's attributes in the most magnifying way, the unity of God his simplicity, his infinity, his immensity, his eternity, his immutability, all of these are set forth alongside his knowledge, his will, his justice, his goodness, his love, grace, and mercy, his power and dominion. Lest these terms appear to be cold concepts, Protestant theology has also insisted on the personality of God. According to Melanchthon and Ursinus, the person is the individual that subsists, who is living, intelligent, not sustained by another, nor a part of another. And Van Til, in describing the Trinity, which he sometimes called the ontological Trinity, to to call attention to its Being used to refer to the three centers of consciousness which are in the members of the Trinity. God is a person. He is a divine person, to be sure. But he's a person, nevertheless. The doctrine of the covenant expresses the relationship between God and his people in its richest manner. The root notion of the covenant is the glory of God. This in turn implies that the reason, the sumum bonum of our existence is knowing God and communing with him. Gerhardus Voss, Van Til's favorite teacher, is is as eloquent as anyone has ever been on the significance of the covenant for human religion. To be a Christian, he says, is to live one's life not merely in obedience to God, nor merely in dependence on God, nor even merely for the sake of God, it's to stand in conscious reciprocal fellowship with God, to be identified with him in thought and purpose and work to receive from him and give back to him in the ceaseless interplay of spiritual forces. According to this, the covenant means that God gives himself to man and man gives himself to God for that full measure of mutual acquaintance and enjoyment of which each side of the relation is capable just beautiful this means that we are religious creatures not that we need ritual or ceremony but that we need to depend on God and when we don't it's not that we cease to be religious but we turn our faith to another object whatever that might be in the words of Bob Dylan's song you got to serve somebody Presuppositional apologetics recognizes the religious core of our natures better than other systems, I think. Because it understands that we're united and that our dispositional complex, however individual and diverse, is always directed towards a goal, be it the true hope of the gospel or the deceptive promise of the idol. Now, I've mentioned the issue of authority This religious drive which we share makes us tend towards some kind of final authority. This is why in presuppositional thinking, it's not embarrassing to confess at the outset that we trust in a self-attesting God. Though proof is required in order for responsible commitment to be made, ultimately, there's no proof above God, by which he must be measured or justified. Unbelief as well, of course, is based on authority and offers some kind of proof. And since no good reason for sin and unbelief can be found, it is based on the unprovable authority of some standard other than God. It's the utterly irrational thing to do. Now, the dynamics of unbelief, I think, are crucial to grasp. And one of the elements that may be surprising to to realize when we think about this uh, confrontational uh, aspect in presuppositional apologetics, about which we learned last night, is that presuppositionalists believe that everyone, unbeliever and believer alike, knows God at some level. The arguments in Romans 1 and 2 are that although we do know God, because God reveals himself to us constantly, yet we turn away from that knowledge and deny him in so many ways. But nevertheless, even our denial would not be possible were it not for our knowledge. And so because of this, we have a point of contact with the unbeliever, despite the great chasm between us. Unbelievers are not folks from another planet. They're our own flesh and blood, confronted with the same revelation we are. When we face a friend who challenges our faith, we know we have in front of us someone who already knows God. And, of course, it's important to appeal to that knowledge in the right way, not naively trying to base our appeal on the same foundations. Nevertheless, we can know for sure that when we have our friend in front of us who's an unbeliever, we have no tabula rasa, but we have here God's image bearer, fleeing what he or she knows to be true in the heart. Another doctrine which I think accommodates presuppositionalism, the noetic effects of sin we are not only fallen in our bodies and in our desires, but even our ability to think and to reason has been affected by sin. The fall is primarily an ethical tragedy. And disobedience characterizes everything we do and say or think. And so seeking to persuade others about the truth of the gospel involves more than just a few logical demonstrations. It means laying bare the fallacies of unbelief in all of its facets. Many other rapprochements could be made between biblical doctrine and the presuppositional approach. But I want to move on to another area, the second. Because of its concern to go to the heart... It's natural for this kind of apologetic to drive inquiry right to the very foundations. Thus, presuppositional apologetics is penetrating. And two dimensions of this could be mentioned. First, it looks deeply into each trend, each philosophy, each world view. But second, it also looks broadly into areas beyond ideas. First, then, our approach seeks to discover what's going on, as it were, behind the scenes. Not that we're looking for some kind of occult meaning using Gnostic techniques, but it involves identifying the, the motives, the, the drive behind a person's lifestyle or a society's trends. This point was brought home to me in a debate which I witnessed when I was in college between a liberal theologian and an evangelical law professor. Uh, The subject of the debate was the resurrection of Christ. And uh, the evangelical used the familiar arguments uh, from the empty tomb of Christ. And he masterfully uh, reviewed the possible theories. You know, uh, the apostles stole the body. Well, that couldn't have happened how could they have preached so confidently later? Uh, the Romans failed to kill them, to kill Jesus, and uh, well, that couldn't have happened because they were pretty good at that. Uh, he was drugged, or my favorite, uh, he, they got the tomb mixed up. You know, in Mark, how it says uh, he is not here. Behold, the place they laid him. Well, that he is not here is over here. Behold, it's, he's way over there in another tomb, and. Um, each of these was refuted on various grounds, leaving only one theory to be valid. It must be that Jesus was really raised from the dead. Now, when, when the liberal theologian responded, it was kind of disconcerting. He said, well, absolutely, I agree. In fact, he complimented him on his eloquence. Now, we in the audience were kind of disappointed. We were hoping for a real debate, and uh, he went along like this, agreeing with them, and then he added almost as a parenthesis that to him, whether or not the physical resurrection occurred had no incidence on his faith. Well, then we began to see a very strange turn of events. Uh, The more the evangelical said that the resurrection happened and was physical, the more the liberal said, fine, but I don't care. Because for him, what mattered was some sort of meaning of resurrection some symbol, truth of it, and the inspiration it could give for life, and so on. What was happening here? Well, quite simply, um, the evangelical had airtight arguments that only stayed on the surface. And he was not able to see that until this dichotomy between history and faith, or physical and spiritual, was confronted and, and refuted, the discussion could go on for a long time without getting anywhere. Anyone who has tried to persuade a Hindu friend about the incarnation of Jesus has run into the same problem. Of course, the friend will say Jesus was incarnate. But others as well. And again, what needs to be done is to probe to the depths and to find what's going on at the most uh, basic level this is of course biblical uh, to the core as psalm 19 puts it uh, when when david prays to the lord um, who can discern his error and the answer of the rest of the psalm is simply that the penetrating power of the word of god which radiates just like the heat of the sun from which nothing is hidden exposes the basic assumptions which are held and control our thoughts and lives. This concern with depth adds another dimension to the advantages of presuppositional apologetics. It reckons with the reality of human psychology, I think better than a number of other methods. Rather than treat people as ideas with feet, it centers on motivation Doubt, certainty, spiritual hunger. These are as important as the use of logic. In fact, they characterize the use of logic. That's one of the basic tenets of presuppositionalism is that logic is not a neutral science that everyone does in the same way. It's morally characterized. As psychologists know, the reasons for unbelief may be quite varied. Take the problem of evil, which is one we deal with all the time in apologetics. On the surface, many questions can be raised. How could God allow children to suffer? Why should believers only know the benefits of grace? How could God have made the world knowing it would fall into evil and death? But beneath the surface, other questions lurk. One person may have a genuine problem with a a philosophical impasse of a God who's both good and powerful. But another one might have been brought up by a hostile father and have nurtured hatred for God whom he mistakenly identifies with his earthly father. Still another may have deep-seated fears that the forces of evil will finally be able to overcome the good because they basically fear a God who is out to condemn. As William Willimon expressed it, the problem is not simply pain, that we feel pain, or that some pain is too much, but that we find so little meaning in some pain. Anguish is the concomitant of meaningless pain. It divides the pain of childbirth from the pain of cancer. Presuppositional apologetics, at its best, will know how to sort out the surface issues from the deeper matters. Furthermore, it'll know how to identify the points of tension where a skeptic, however clear his objections might be, will have admitted engaging in some ethical maneuver to escape God at some level. I say at its best because presuppositionalists are not always faithful to what their system requires. It's possible to have all of this methodology well understood and still lack compassion for the lost. Sadly, an apologetic which is supposed to be more centered on God than others can often be practiced in a way that ignores the grace and the love of the God we seek to defend. But second, our approach is freer than others to explore different realms of experience besides ideas. Oz Guinness, in his underrated book, The Gravedigger File, talks about the disastrous effects of ignoring culture and social relations as we treat human beings. You may know that the book is a a set of memos from a senior spy to his apprentice and these memos tell the junior spy how to subvert the Christian church and one way is to put the church to sleep. He calls it the Sandman effect and the master spy says to be sure and keep Christians fighting a battle for the mind only and avoid anything else besides ideas because that way only a handful of people will be alerted to the dangers of secularism. Now, what Guinness is pleading for with this irony I think has been understood by the best theologians down the century. Listen to, as by philosophical argument. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say it the other way around that ideas aren't crucial and that words aren't somehow central. After all, apologetics has the word logos at its center. But with Guinness and many others, I'm saying, let's look at the full context for ideas. A lot of studies have been done on this by historians. Why, for example, in the 19th century, did people become attracted to Marxism? Not primarily through Marx and Engels' philosophical arguments, which were difficult even for trained people to understand. But more often because they were hungry, because the working conditions in London were terrible, and it looked like the the church wasn't doing much about it. Slogans such as, religion is the opiate of the people, rang true to a working class that felt ill at ease in the Victorian houses of worship. I think unfairly because Victorian Christians were doing a lot for social issues. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say it the other way around, that ideas aren't crucial and that words aren't somehow central. After all, apologetics has the word logos at its center. But with Guinness and many others, I'm saying, let's look at the full context for ideas. A lot of studies have been done on this by historians. Why, for example... In the 19th century, did people become attracted to Marxism? Not primarily through Marx and Engels' philosophical arguments, which were difficult even for trained people to understand, but more often because they were hungry, because the working conditions in London were terrible, and it looked like the the church wasn't doing much about it. Slogans such as religion is the opiate of the people rang true to a working class that felt ill at ease in the Victorian houses of worship. I think unfairly because Victorian Christians were doing a lot for social issues, but the issue here uh, was not truth. The point is that beliefs are held often without concern for whether something is true or false. But for a whole complex of reasons, which I think our apologetic system is able to deal with. It is in culture that we live and move and have much of our being. And so presuppositional apologetics looks into social trends, styles of life, in order to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that reaches real people in the real world. What areas are open for investigation? Well, the seminars presented at this conference give a good idea of the diversity. World religions, science, the media, therapy, ethnic minorities, and of course, philosophy itself. These are all legitimate areas where we can engage unbelief. Popular culture is an important place to examine if we're going to take stock of a large segment of our population. A song about loneliness by R.E.M. A film about an innocent simpleton named Forrest Gump. An investigation by Oprah Winfrey into sisters who share the same boyfriend. The baseball strike. A best-selling book about Generation X. These tell us a good deal about the values held By Americans. Our goal in this is not just fascination with subjects that are newly acceptable at the university. It's to discern the minds of our fellow human beings who are lost and confused in the culture of disbelief. Culture is a confusing notion, perhaps, but as increasing work is being done on its dimensions and implications, we have a new awareness of the ways in which the world can have an influence on us. Consider this seemingly far-fetched example. As we learned last night from Dr. Carl Henry, a debate rages over the subject of the postmodern condition. On one side, it's said that we have moved irretrievably away from the Enlightenment and its ideals of reason, equality, industry, and progress. As François Lyotard puts it, Auschwitz can be taken as a paradigmatic name for the tragic incompletion of modernity. On the other side, scholars insist that modernity's roots are so deep that far from abandoning the enlightenment, we've become ultra-modern, pushing the ideals of reason, equality, industry, and progress to their extreme. Which one is right? A surprising source gives the answer. It's the study of fashion. The history of clothing from the mid-19th century to the present helps us discern the deeper commitments of our culture. Authors such as Anne Hollander and Gilles Lipovetsky have studied the history of the way the middle class dresses. And at the center is a great transformation in the 19th century to the gray suit. Hollander shows that On the surface, this drab, uniform business attire represents the colder, enlightenment belief in thrift, responsibility, and self-control. And also because of the possibility of everyone, rich and poor alike, to wear the same clothes, this ideal of equality and progress, coupled with other democratic principles, is reinforced. At the same time, the suit can be individually tailored even becoming flattering to the human body because it draws attention to the man or woman wearing the suit rather than to itself. As a result, there's a a subtle and powerful way in which individuality can be expressed and competition fostered. The suit, as she maintains, proves the triumph of the Enlightenment and the tenacity of modernity. It confirms that both the brighter side... Democracy and progress, as well as the darker side, literally, in this case, are very much with us. Now, I don't mean this to be a cheap shot lodged at advocates of the postmodern condition, but it brings a dimension to the discussion which recognizes the reality of culture and its intimate testimony to who we are and to what we think. And presuppositional apologetics has not done enough with this cultural dimension, to be sure. But I believe it's uniquely qualified to do so because it recognizes that we begin at the heart and not simply at the head. A third implication of presuppositional apologetics is the freedom it gives to be guided by scriptural principles. Put very simply, we're free to have the Bible tell us what side to take on an issue rather than having our views dictated ahead of time. There's a good deal of discussion today about culture wars. Some consider the metaphor dangerous because it puts everyone, including Christians, in a combative mode. I don't have that quarrel since I think the Bible is replete with fighting words. My problem is rather with the ill effects of the polarization that many trend watchers discern. James Davison Hunter's two major books, Culture Wars and Before the Shooting Begins, have many helpful descriptions of the current battles over abortion, pornography, education, and so on. But the implication is that there are only two sides to choose the conservative, as he calls it, and the progressive. And Hunter claims that he can tell us how a person will evaluate various political and moral questions depending on which camp he might belong to. And furthermore, he places most evangelical Christians in the conservative camp across the board. Now, I believe this is deeply mistaken. As a Christian, I do go along with the conservative camp on many issues, but on others, I'm quite progressive, I hope. On most issues, in fact, I'm neither conservative nor progressive, but in a kind of third mode which has no particular label. A thoughtful piece appeared recently by James Skillen, one of our graduates and a a close friend. He's the director of the Center for Public Justice in Washington. It's entitled, Whose Contract for Welfare Reform? And he describes the, the current welfare program as a powerful symbol of the decline of America. Government has been incapable of carrying out justice and providing incentives for work. The liberal hope of changing society by means of money and congressional action is clearly a myth. Republicans, newly in power, are now claiming that if only big government could be downsized, not only would justice be done, but poverty would be reduced considerably. Skillen says the Republican reply is no more realistic than the liberal ideal. It basically sets its hope on just doing away with this unwieldy symbol and leaving people to their own devices. That will no more eliminate crime, poverty, unwed mothers, and the drug problem than costly programs. Neither government reduction nor government spending will solve America's fundamental problem, which is the need to become morally accountable within the many different centers of responsibility, the family, School, leisure time, the workplace, and so on. To be sure, some government reform, preferably downsizing, has its place. Government must do more than cut off its misguided funding experiments, however. It must protect, uphold, secure with justice a manifold society in which people can express their true dignity and honor as creatures serving God and neighbor, says Jim Skillen. This is presuppositional thinking, I believe. We must be free to get past pre-assigned roles and find out what Scripture says about each issue. It's become a favorite expression among Christians who want to avoid polarization to seek a third way. This can be a helpful instinct, but we need to be careful because even the third way can become a pre-assigned position. Now, I'm not trying to open the door for existentialism here, which has no rules. Quite the contrary, what we really need is to develop a Christian worldview which begins not from pre-assigned positions but from a commitment to the authority of scripture and then that looks into all of life under the lordship of the author of scripture whose service is perfect freedom. Rapidly and finally, presuppositional apologetics promotes the art of persuasion with both intellectual rigor and imagination. It's a pity so much current evangelism is rather prosaic and linear. This stands in contrast not only with the greatest theologians in history but with the biblical pattern itself where the truth of the divine message is cast in so many forms. One of Van Til's favorite ways to describe the biblical worldview was the Christian story. Indeed, From the word historia, a story is an account of the events and facts that are pertinent. This accounting may and often is done by narrative, but it can also be done in poetic form or in parables. We moderns have fallen into the bad habit of dividing between something true and just a story. But we should rather learn from street language. Hey, what's the story here? This is more than just a plea to use a little narrative, a little poetry in our apologetics. At the heart of a presuppositional approach is the two steps of first getting over to the opponent's ground in order to discover and help him discover the impossibility of his position, and second, to invite him over on to biblical grounds in order that he may taste and see that the Lord is good. Since people are often not ready to hear a direct version of the message, both steps might involve some destabilizing. The tellers of biblical times were constantly keeping people off balance. This is not because they enjoyed manipulating, but because the roadblocks caused by sin prevent a more direct approach. Furthermore, the Lord himself came, as it were, To subvert the human race and thereby to seek and to save that which is lost. The great prophets often used subversionary tactics. After King David had sinned, committing both adultery and the equivalent of murder, he had numbed his senses and was comfortably entrenched in his protected position as potentate with certain rights. Had Nathan the prophet come into the courtroom and spoken directly of his sins, he might have found himself ejected from the throne room rather promptly. But as we know, he told them a story instead. A rich man had many sheep and cattle, and a poor man had only one ewe lamb whom he loved. In order to prepare a feast one day for a guest, the rich man simply dispossessed the poor man of his ewe lamb and... David's reaction was swift as it was revealing. The verdict, this rich man deserves death and needs to restore four times what he'd taken. And then the crime, for he did this thing and had no pity. Nathan had merely to say, you are the man. And he got through. This is presuppositional apologetics in its Old Testament form. Jesus did the same thing constantly in the New Testament. Take the story of the rich young ruler. To answer his question about how to get eternal life, he first cites the human commandments from the Decalogue, to which the young man quite sincerely replied, I think he had done all these. And then instead of what you might expect, listing the others, he hit him with the surprise of the requirement to sell everything, give to the poor, and follow him. And this he could not do. Jesus had reached his basic idol. And the conversation that follows shows that the apostles understood the problem is not for rich people because Peter asked, then, who can get in? It's for all of us who put anything before God. Both Nathan and our Lord were aiming at the most basic level of what motivated their audience. But to get there, they made them lean over in one direction until they were off balance and vulnerable to the truth. Our culture has in many ways sealed itself off from reality, the reality of the presence of God. What is most likely to reach its vulnerable side is not only prosaic discourse, but the good subversion of the prophetic imagination. I well remember a discussion between Francis Schaefer and a young woman who was riddled with fears of all kinds. She was a believer, and yet she was convinced that Christianity had no real answers for her anxiety, because the kind of God she thought the Bible revealed was not the kind of God interested in comforting her. Now, Schaefer could have taken, given her a long theological discourse, beginning with the attributes of God and assurance of faith. Instead, he simply said to this young woman, do you know that there are thousands upon thousands of angels in this world. And there are some undoubtedly in this room. And God has assigned some of them to each of us. Well, she was quite unprepared for this argument. The tears began to well up in her eyes, as Schaefer then patiently explained to her, that God cared so much about us that he had sent special invisible messengers But most of all, he told her about Jesus Christ who is far above any angel and who gave himself for her and for all believers at great cost to himself. Presuppositional apologetics should be most conversant with surprise since the gospel itself is God's everlasting surprise. Sadly, many so-called presuppositionalists are well able to stress the antithesis and go for the jugular. But in doing this, they're not very surprising. They don't know much about the grace of God, which is the very essence of the Christian story. Well, that's why I'm a presuppositionalist, because I believe that in the world we have trouble. But Jesus Christ has overcome the world by the grace of the gospel.